0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Your Therapist Needs Therapy, the podcast where mental health professionals talk about their own mental wellness journeys and how they navigate staying mentally well while working in the mental health field. Today I am joined by Hannah Brentz. Hannah, thanks for joining me today.
1: Yeah, I'm super excited to be here.
0: You are the theology therapist on Instagram, which I think is how I initially crossed paths all us religious trauma folks on Instagram. Yeah. uh, and We'll talk about that and, and get into that, but I, I want to start with my normal question, which is always, how did you get into the mental health field? What kind of brought you here? Yeah,
1: so um, I was in, I had initially rejected any um, recommendation uh, or push in the direction of psychology, but I went to um, get my master's degree in divinity and uh, during that time I was on a travel seminar in Israel- Palestine and um, realized there were some other dual degree students uh, there for between religion and social work. and I just realized like, ah I'm gonna need a job soon and this feels like a really uh, like the exact perfect blend of my like head meets heart um and so it was really the like concrete implementation of a lot of the um sort of yeah philosophical ethical um work that i'd been doing up to that point
0: yeah and and was psychology like kind of that aha moment sociology kind of that like oh this makes sense, or was that something that you've been like interested in? Was that something that was shunned growing up? Like I know for me, psychology was not something that was promoted. Uh, being mm-hmm. raised kind of in a high control religion.
1: Yeah, so um I it wasn't uh, in the at least in my nuclear family, it wasn't shunned by any means, but it just wasn't like really talked about. We just didn't talk about it. Um, and, but ironically, um, so I went to get my bachelor's degree in religion and, um, that was a no, no, because I identify as a woman. And so the nudge was to like go into psychology, which was, or teaching, which was like way, way more like cool or kosher than, um, than doing religion. Um, Sure. So so part of part of my like deconstruction and healing process was initially being like you're all trying to get me to do this thing hell no and then years later coming back around and realizing it was actually what i wanted to do
0: yeah so you had a master's of divinity and got a master's in in social work then too or or fill in give us the rest of the history there
1: yeah yeah so i got um I got a master's in social work and I was in the process of getting a master's in divinity, but I did not want to be in school that much longer. So I, sure. I switched to get a master's in theological studies. Um, so that's sort of a little bit of a technical thing. And the only thing that really changed is one year of school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So then what was your introduction into the field kind of like, like yeah. where did you start um, out working and, and give us some of that, that history. Yeah,
1: totally. So My introduction, I think, was quite different. Maybe not to some of the other people, like other therapists in the religious trauma field, but to the other people in my social work program, it was quite different. I was um, in, my introduction into the field was in inpatient um, state, in in forensic inpatient hospitalizations. Um, And so you worked, my, my, uh, my really like main background was in, persistent um, severe and persistent mental mental illness and loved 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 that Um, I realized like those were my people Um, but because of the managed care system um, with insurance and uh, things like that I started to when I was working I started to burn out quite quickly Um, and at that point I had met my partner who, and we were in an international long distance relationship. And so that burnout paired with international long distance, I decided I'm gonna quit my job. Um, and so I quit my job and I moved to Europe um, and I was did like clinical part-time work and then opened my private practice. And um, so it was a totally different, it was kind of left field almost, kind like of right turn from, the work that I've been doing in, um, with like chronic and persistent mental illness. Um, and it was a totally different, like I was working with totally different clients. And so it's been honestly a learning process. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what, uh, what was like the timeline there for, uh, cause I'm always kind of curious how New professionals, whether social work or therapy, I think often have these high intensity jobs because it's yeah. hard to get people who have been in the field for a long time to stay with those jobs. So I'm always yeah. curious what like the, the burnout timeline is, because in my head, I'm always like, oh, you mm. got like five years to play with early in your career.
1: Oh, my God. No, no, no. Burnout. Wh- because I think it would have been a little bit different if if my context was a little bit different. But my burnout was like one year um, Sure, because of those so- other
0: circumstances
1: other circumstances and I was that I was working in a private hospital, which is a little bit different than um, a um, like sort of state or public hospital. Um, and so the, it's just like the revolving door on uh, the patients who we saw was mm-hmm. so high, I guess you might say that we we're seeing the same people all the time. And so then it just starts to feel like, am I doing anything? productive or helpful here um, when you're just, I'm just seeing the same people over and over. Um, and so it just started to feel like, okay, this system is broken um, and that like the, there's so much work here that I, I, I can't get it all done. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then the sort of ex, like other circumstantial context, I think yeah. also played into that.
0: What did you have any training around running a private practice? Did you have any business knowledge coming out of grad school?
1: None. Yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> which which I have a lot of people who own their own practices. I'm a little biased as somebody who owns their own practice because I think it's a good thing for the field. But yeah, that's a common theme of yeah, like, kind of you, you have the mental health stuff, you have the social work stuff, therapy stuff, but you don't have any preparation. Like it's just kind of like yeah. you'll do agency work and figure it out and like that's yeah. not sustainable for a lot of people.
1: No, and like honestly, I um I knew this um I was interning when I was in grad school w- with um a woman who we were interns together and I'm so grateful that I I knew her at the time but she told me that she was going to make 50,000 or whatever I don't remember whenever she we graduated. And I was, so I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that too and I lived in Boston at the time which is one of the highest um, has the highest cost of living in the country and so mm-hmm. I, I just knew like i could do that and i needed that in order to afford like living in a studio in boston uh, even like so many years ago now and uh, my first I, I had the worst job i've ever had right out of college worst it was unsafe and uh there i was it felt unsafe for so many reasons and my boss underpaid i could only pay rent and not utilities not food nothing else just rent and my boss i said i'm like going to quit because i i can't afford to live and work here um he said well how much do you think you're going to make anywhere else and i said i'm going to make i can make 50000 and he said no you can't you can't make that anywhere and it just was like I think that is the kind of culture that you're where you we are talking about with around like the helping profession is even like your mentors or at least mine uh, in the field or are so not hopeful (laughs) about what it can be like.
0: Yeah well and I think you you brought up insurance earlier like for me I've been in the field for 15 years now like I think that i was presented with that's the only way to make money is you have to take insurance and like it sucks but it is what it is at the time like when i started doing therapy the reimbursement rates were like 60 bucks a session and (laughs) then those have improved but it's still lower than what a lot of people are going to charge in in private practice like just to be able to pay their bills like i think people are often surprised when people say I make X amount of dollars and I'm on food stamps still or I still qualify yeah, for benefit because totally. it's, it's so expensive especially depending on where you live some place like Boston or Colorado Denver area right now is super expensive mm-hmm. like
1: mm-hmm. there's
0: so many things that go into this where you have a job that's high stress yeah and then you're like struggling to make ends meet so it's it's a recipe for burnout like totally. if I wanted to make someone burn out this is how I would go about <laughs> doing that
1: Totally. And as a therapist, uh, in my clinical practice, the most stressed that I ever see people is when they are financially stressed. Yeah. Um, like we go into the hair pulling phase and the, um, you know, like this, the pressured speech and saying things that are you know, like making decisions that they wouldn't probably normally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then you're practicing in a system, like you said, is broken. Like I I practice in Milwaukee, very few resources for people, um, not for people who who are struggling to have money, like six, nine months to find a psychiatrist. Like it's just a nightmare scenario for trying to get people support when you're doing your best as a therapist to support them.
1: Yeah, totally. And it's just like such a catch 22. It's like, I think people, therapists who are, um, Out of network uh, have availability oftentimes and specialize um but there's there's like that upfront cost associated with it whereas insurance based therapists uh, don't have availability and um and like there's just this like kind of catch 22 here i think with the, the kind of managed care system
0: yeah. And it's, it's not helpful for people trying to get support, but like it's, it's tough for therapists too, not to like throw a pity party for ourselves here, but like you have the ethical dilemma of like, <laughs> yeah. not everyone can afford to see me or the ethical dilemma of practicing in a way that doesn't fit for you. Cause you have yeah. to do what the insurance company is going to reimburse you for.
1: Right. Totally. Oh, of course.
0: Yeah. It's turned into a bummer of an episode so far. I know.
1: Anyways. <laughs>
0: yeah, segue out of that. No, but like uh so what was so obviously not having a ton of training in private practice, but then getting into private practice, like what was yeah. what's that experience been? Like you said, it's it's some learning as you go. Yeah. Um can you talk a little bit about that experience?
1: Yeah. Um so I've just done so much training, um, since getting into private practice and I love it. I do. Um, I mean, I love having my private practice and, um, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine do anything else. And, um, so, you know, it's, it's just always like, there's just so much out there to learn. And it's so easy to get into like shiny object syndrome, even with, trainings um whether it's like business trainings on like how to be a business owner or whether it's on like how to be a a better clinician Um, and so um i think it's it's just it's this nice balance or finding a balance between um really developing both aspects of that of that kind of part of the job and so some of the some of the trainings that i've done before have been um, like really in um, trauma work, uh, so I specialize in a lot of trauma work, and and then I have the religious like background. I have the bachelor's and masters um, in, and so that's really how that where the religious trauma specialization came in from was the it was really the pairing of my formal and then experiential background.
0: Sure. Yeah. And so then building that as kind of your your specialty in your private practice, uh, I think obviously it's great having that trauma background, because when you're working with something like religious harm or high control religion, you see huh. so much trauma inherent in that. You know, we talk about religious trauma mm-hmm. as a concept. Um, so, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that as as a specialty, kind of how you help people? We'll get into some of your marketing stuff, because I know you've got a group running and a wait list and all this great stuff that you're doing. Um but talk about like kind of building that as as like your area of specialty from a business perspective of like how did you start to build this and market this as like hey this is what I do this these are the people I work with.
1: Yeah, um, I think that I started making a ton of reels um, and I started that like coming up now on a year ago and um, and it was. It, it just was like such a, so different, like using such a different part of my brain than, um, with all the other work that I was doing. And it was just like kind of fun to think about ways in communicating, like how this shows up in, in my life and in other people's lives that, that I know or who I, who I talk to, or who reach out to me. And, um, and so, and I think that like a lot of times, I think academia like ruined writing for me. Um, I can only now write you a 25-page research paper. I can really struggle with like anything that's relatable or interesting. Um, and so like video actually felt like a, an approachable way for me to to kind of get into the space um and communicate with people outside of like just having a website um because i think that i just it just feels easier for me to connect with folks through you know video even if it's not like one-on-one
0: sure yeah yeah that's interesting i i think i i hated writing in apa format so much that having permission to do these super informal blog posts was like a breath (laughs) of fresh air for me right Uh, but it's, it's weird, right? Even in, in the sense of like marketing, like my grad school was very against putting yourself as a person out there. Mm, like mm, mm-hmm. it was this unprofessional thing. And then when you're a private practice owner, you're like, oh, wait, like I have to learn how to market this, which is a totally yeah. different mindset.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think even like I've been doing a lot of learning about this recently. Um, and... And I think even just like it is, it challenges me to be like precise. Uh, I think that um, as, as someone who just is like inundated with this all the time, like this content of like religious harm and et cetera, it just is easy for me to make assumptions about what other people are thinking. Um, And so um, the other day I had somebody who is like, I don't even know if they've ever been religious, look at my account and say like, but like, what is religious trauma? <laughs> like, okay, wait a second, you know? And so like, I think it just really helps with at least me with communicating and precision and not making assumptions about what other people know or don't know or where people are coming from.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, it's great online that there's a a community for deconstruction. Like, as as somebody who is leaving religion, my experience, like, I didn't find all those podcasts that are super helpful and awesome until after I had deconstructed. (laughs) Yeah, Um, because right, that's the information control. When you're in a high Mm -hmm. control religion, you don't know what's out there. But so there there are communities around deconstruction. There are communities around religious harm. There are communities for professionals like us who work with the religious trauma field, but like, those can become their own kind of little echo chambers. And it's, it's this balancing act, I think, of someone who's starting to question their faith is at a way different point than somebody who's two years outside of their, like, organized religion. So that that process that happens is a lot of change. And so we as professionals, right, have to kind of be aware of like, where are people at in their process.
1: Yeah. Totally, and I think that that has been um, it has been a really good challenge for me because uh, my crisis of faith and my deconstruction really happened about ten fifteen years ago, and so I, I feel oftentimes like really so far removed from what what it felt like that um, like I keep meaning to like make something about this or put this out there but like my partner lovingly says to me or that like if i was still that way we would not be together um sure. be- because like you know when i think about it um I, it was like i was it was a c- completely different life uh, and I, I was a completely different person and um and you're like it is its own echo chamber
0: Yeah. And I I think not in a culty way that like organized religion can be, but like, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think I see this with a lot of the deconstruction podcasts and like not to cast dispersions on anyone, but like they kind of filter themselves out after two or three years. Cause once you've been deconstructed for two or three years, it, it just, that process has less meaning to you. Like you're interested in other things.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it's a, yeah, it's interesting. I think I, I've been out of organized religion for about five years and out and about as an atheist for about two years, but it's, it is interesting. Like you have to catch yourself. I'll have new clients who come in and they're like, I don't think I have religious trauma. I'm like, oh, mm. right. We got to go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. let me, welcome back up. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it's interesting. I think it saves so much time as therapists to understand something like purity culture. Like somebody can say those words and I instantly know what that means. Doesn't mean I don't ask clarifying questions. Doesn't mean we don't dig into it, but like there's a shorthand that's available, which I think is Mm -hmm. really helpful for people and that they don't have to necessarily re-traumatize every aspect of their culty upbringings. But at the same time, like um, where you're at when you've deconstructed for, two years, five years, 10 years is different than when you're going through the process.
1: Yeah, and what I would say is actually that has been a little bit hard for me to nuance online is that that is actually the space that I prefer to be in. Um, And and maybe just personality or interest, but um, I am less clinically speaking. um, I would say like a little bit less interested in that immediate crisis of faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And really more interested in the, like, sort of two to ten year gap there. How do you Um, rebuild it? Exactly. Because, and I think that that's really where my, um, like, academic religious background comes in. Is that uh, I, like, for example, I went to Boston University and um, was surrounded by people who were different than me. And, And I learned, like, I had to learn how to think for myself, how to form opinions, and how, how to disagree respectfully, and how to uh, like make friends with people who are different than me. And, and that all of this is okay. And, um, and I think that because in that two to 10 year gap, you start to, to return to some amount of equal equilibrium in life after that initial crisis. Um, you start to return to status quo without, I think often uh, giving yourself the time and space to actually develop a new sort of belief system. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I you know without without developing that new belief system, I think it can really, there can be that sort of, um, yeah, like existential, underlying existential, uh, like unrest, I might say.
0: Yeah. And depending on people's life experience, they might not know how to navigate that. Like if you were born into high control religion, you've been indoctrinated from birth. You don't know how to build the belief system. You don't know how to go through the process of like, what are your actual values? Right. And I think for a lot of people, they don't disappear because they're not in a specific religion anymore. I think it just, you have to recalibrate kind of what things are meaningful to you.
1: Yeah. And I think that like often, um, and maybe in the deconstruction space too, like I have felt a little bit, um, not unwelcome, but like I I don't fit at times um, because I think a lot, uh, there's a lot of, I have experienced or seen a lot of anger uh in the space and i don't really feel that um and and when i if i post something angry it's like a lot of response but if i post something about like happiness not so much right and so um i i think that what can happen is that there's this like um Dialectic between I am either religious or I'm an atheist or agnostic or something of that sort, but I think a lot of folks don't actually know what that means. Um, and right. there, there's just like, there's really like, um, just it's just like, oh, I just wish that every we could all go to theology school, you know, um, and um. And I think that that's, like, a lot of my clients f- who come for religious trauma come saying I, like, I, I tried on atheism or agnosticism, whatever it was, and it just doesn't feel like it fits right. But I don't know how to, like, cope with the idea of being, like, any sort of religious or spiritual. Um, and so what I think th- like and I'd be I'd love to hear what you think about this because not that one is better or worse or the other but just like the presence of black and white maybe the assumption of black and white thinking of like I am either this extreme or that extreme instead of being able to investigate for yourself what your value system is and then understanding where you lie
0: yeah and i I think atheism as a label is a poor one because it's just you're identifying by what you're not, and that's not as meaningful as what you are instead. Um, I think professionally, I generally identify as an atheist because I think that matters in, you know, I worked at a Christian counseling place when I started my career. Mm -hmm. Like, I think to be out and about as a secular therapist is helpful, Um, but like I engage in personal, like I identify as atheopagan, pagan which is a non-theistic paganism, like secular naturalism type thing and like that's really meaningful to me so like that has value and and I think as I don't mind sharing that part of me um either professionally or with clients but it's it's not I'm not advocating for it I'm just saying like right that's where I've landed and that's what feels comfortable I love nature always have I have ADHD so there's a lot about like the natural world that's helpful for my mental health and becomes sacred because of that um but yeah no that that angry atheist trope exists for a reason, I think. Um, mm. But it, I think it's one of those things where that's part of the process for some people. I look at it, I'm a marriage therapist, so I look at it as kind of a breakup. Mm. Like, you don't have to yeah. go through the five stages of grief to go through a breakup. Like, that's wildly <laughs> oversimplistic. Mm. But, like, there's some anger there. There's some bargaining there. I think similarly, um, there's some anger that comes up with people when they're like, wait, I was yeah. lied to, or there were injustices yeah. done, I was harmed. So I think that anger speaks to like your values being yes. trampled on. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that's the healthiest place. That sounds like I'm judging. Uh, that's not for not for everyone to stay in that angry space. I don't. I, I think don't think the, it's super healthy.
1: I think the key, I would say, at least for me or from my perspective, is like to stay. You like to stay there, um, and I think like that's the. The piece it's it's it is super healthy to be to rageful, (laughs) Um, but forever gets a little tiring. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, I tend to say like anger. I tend to say emotions are neutral. It's it's what actions we're attaching to them, and so Mm -hmm. being intentional in our response. Like if you're angry about, you know, Roe v. Wade being overturned, or you're angry like, and you do something about it, like that's great. If you're Mm -hmm. You know, just posting online every day and getting angrier and angrier, that's probably not gonna mm. be super sustainable for you long term. So like, mm. yeah, and I think it's emotions are neutral. what are what actions are we attaching to those things?
1: Yeah. And like I guess what I would say about like what we were talking about a second ago about like religiosity versus atheism is like neither one of those, like they're neutral. They, like neither one of them is like really better or worse. From what I'm, especially where I'm coming from as a therapist, um, is that it, it's like one how how you relate to it and its impact on you, and like and 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 then like being intentional, using critical thinking skills to decide, like, does this align with the way that you see yourself, others, in the world, in the divine, the sacred. Um, yeah. And, and it's, like, from that place. And so if that aligns with a religion or with atheism or with, like, right, paganism or with, uh, like, whatever other thing, woo, like, being woo-woo, like, then it's it's about, like, using the critical thinking skills to actually determine what is, um, like, authentically aligned with uh, how, how, you're, how you see the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I, I see some of the, high control religion tactics of in wellness spaces that are secular that you know so so right it's it's being aware of those things it's not those things didn't get created by religion and they don't exist just in religion like i have a lot of people
1: who come sorry who come and uh, talk about how it happens in their workplace like their workplace uses those things Um,
0: Yep.
1: so it's definitely not or like a you know someone messaged me about um i don't remember if it was yoga or like some other workout space but like these these practices are not isolated to religion
0: right yeah religion takes advantage of them in the same way that other places take advantage of them they're they're naturally occurring biases in our Mm -hmm. brain we like to categorize things we have in group out groups and when that gets crystallized intentionally that does some different things to our brain
1: yeah
0: but yeah i think i mean talking about spiritual but not religious or like the rise of the nuns i see all these articles mm. n-o-n-e mm-hmm. the rise of the nuns mm-hmm. like i think yeah. that's it's a thing that people are becoming more aware of as people leave church and don't necessarily pick up a different specified identity like i think that process of meaning making is important still at that time
1: totally and and this actually comes up with almost all of my clients who are not there specifically for religious trauma like um i've seen a lot of clients who are in a big life transition and have left whatever career or an employment or something like that and we talk about how even if they didn't grow up religious like generally a few decades ago religion is what provided people with a a set of rules that said this is what makes life meaningful. And this is what makes you a good person or a bad person. And with what you're talking about, the new research coming out with it, um, like the nuns being the highest growing uh, sort of affiliation in quotes um, mm-hmm. of religiosity or spirituality, um, that there, I, I think because of what we were saying a few minutes ago about how we often don't then cultivate, something new in its place it is my unresearched opinion that what then happens is our brain is like sort of okay well what is the next um like biggest thing that I do in life well it's work and so then work is what I believe what we're seeing is like work is then um like given the emphasis that was put on what used to be or historically put on religion um and i think because people often especially if they're going through a period of unemployment it brings up a lot of um sentiment around that like being valuable or being worthy or um anything like that and if you don't have a job that like you're just on fire passionate for any of those kind of things that people all say, you know, your job should meet at the crossroads of whatever that you like. I see a lot of people who are like, you know, like there's a lot of conflict around this mm-hmm. because their job is like, meh, like yeah. pay the bills, you know? Um, and so I don't know. I think that like, and then I, I think that that's doubled if your workplace is culty. Um, yeah. So it just like, I think that it's just because we often, I think end up asking the question of the, what makes life meaningful of work, especially as Americans. We're like, hi, I'm Hannah. I'm a therapist. Right. Um, yeah. like, hi, Jeremy. What do you do? Nice to meet you.
0: Yeah, we're not talking about what our favorite albums are. When we first meet someone, we talk about what we do for work,
1: right? And that's like my soapbox. But I, in um, being in other I, countries where work is like less of a, um, uh, like less valuable, less important, um, I, I have friends who I legitimately, after years of knowing them, do not. Look I do not know what they do for work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um,
0: I know, I know my cl- clients listen to my, my podcast, so I don't want to go too into detail how I'm a terrible therapist, but um, I will forget what people do for work constantly. Because for me, like as a therapist, it's not particularly important, like unless mm. it's relevant to what I'm working mm-hmm. on. Like yeah. if I'm doing couples therapy and somebody has a weird work schedule, sure. I'll remember it then. Cause it affects the couple. So sure. like, I have like vague ideas of like sales or engineer type thing. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Those job titles are because it, it, yeah, it doesn't matter a whole lot. Yeah. But I think, you know, I, I'm going to nerd out a little bit on, on systems theory for, um, as a marriage therapist, but like we talk about first order change, which is like a behavior change. Um, I want to quit smoking or I want to lose weight or whatever behavior change, just changing behaviors to get a result. And second order change being, um, like a system change. So like we're gonna change, we as a couple are gonna change the way we parent or making a change at work um, and the culture or whatever. And then third order change is really that belief system. And so I think like I was a marriage therapist, I've been a marriage therapist my whole career. So for me, that third order change is where like lasting change happens and that's really powerful transformative stuff. And so I love doing this work with people who are deconstructing because I see that as third order change where like this belief system is changing um, and it's, again, it's not a dichotomy. Like, it's not, I was religious, now I'm not. It's a changing. It's a process of, like, well, what does that mean moving forward?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's it's so meaningful. <laughs> I was trying to think of a yeah. different word to avoid meaning-making being meaningful. But, like, it's so powerful to see in people's lives when they land someplace that's genuine and someplace that's authentic. Like Totally. It's so cool.
1: Yeah, totally um i know as a therapist like i've had a few long time clients um end recently and it is it's so emotional to as as the clinician i think they know this too um as the clinician when um you know sometimes like this is not probably always kosher to say but like i talk to my clients often more than i talk to my friends um Mm -hmm. and so even though it's different than a friend relationship it there is that like just so much relationship there like there's so much history um of knowing someone and so when they're like flourishing it's like oh so touching to send them off and on this like i don't know on this like new phase of life and their journey and also so lovely uh when that actually gets to happen in therapy because you don't get to practice endings very often or very well um Mm -hmm. so i always tell them like you know we get to practice this here even though it's hard for both of us
0: yeah 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 it's a cool process it's weird it's hard it's it's hard to talk about it for non-therapists and i'm not saying it just happens in therapy but like I always talk about like how honored I am to be a therapist. And I think that sounds so like janky to people who aren't therapists. Like, Oh, everyone just says that, but like, it's, it's hard to explain. Like, right. I don't go on that journey with someone is, is a very, like, I don't know. I feel very honored to be able to do that with people.
1: Totally. I
0: feel that. Um, Let's segue a little bit. Um, Can we, can we talk about kind of the, um, Now I'm having a a total blank. Um, The the package that you're offering, the coaching that you offer, you've got um, this whole program you've put together for people. Can we talk about that a little bit?
1: I'm sure. Um, So I, so I, I offer. I started my private practice, which is where I work one-on-one with people. And currently, that is only for people in the state of Massachusetts. But soon, uh, hopefully, within the next few weeks, it will also be for people in Florida and Texas. Um, okay. Yeah. And outside of that, though, that's for one-on-work, one-on-one, one-on-one work. Outside of that, um, I have created a course called "Making Peace with Your Religious Past." and that is really where i have taken all of the sort of steps and resources that i have used with my clients one-on-one and compiled it into this course that you know someone could walk through on their own Um, although there is some um like facebook online support but it's where, like, all of those resources are compiled together. And and I think, like, really, like, just what I and maybe you did not have when we were deconstructing of the, like, w- what it does take to actually change a belief system. Um, how, like, what are the practices for working through, like, the rage or guilt or shame or the panic that comes up? When you are doing that um and so it's some of the body-based practices um and then reimagining relationships and sexuality um and even spirituality out like after you do those two things um because i would say like those are really i think the areas that i see most folks kind of come out of high control religion with conflict uh in and were the areas for myself where i had experienced that religious harm
0: yeah yeah and i i i I love that i a as a therapist knowing not everyone can afford therapy like i love how many people are putting together these things so that people can kind of go through it on their own time like i think therapy benefits everyone I'm biased. I'm a therapist, (laughs) but I think therapy is not designed inherently to be like lifelong for people. It's something you're in and out of as needed. You get a professional's help for a specific thing or a specific couple of things. And so then like getting resources like this or having somebody who has the knowledge, um, not just the school academic knowledge, but also the lived experience, Um, putting this stuff together is awesome. And I think like for people to have these communities that are popping up is, is really powerful. It, yeah. and be very lonely deconstructing when yeah. everyone you know is a church person and you're leaving right. that. And so oh like gosh, that's the yes. whole process too.
1: Totally. And like the idea behind, you know, I kind of went back and forth on the Facebook thing because I hate Facebook and I am sure. like never on it. Uh, it doesn't, it exists for me, but it doesn't. Um, and, and like, but I ended up deciding to Uh, put together and offer, this um, Facebook, private Facebook community for anyone who is going through it, because it can be such a lonely process. And it can be really helpful, like not just for me, but from other people who are going through the same process to get feedback on like, maybe you're working through a specific belief and you're just stuck. Um, And like, you know, kind of putting that to the group or the community and saying like, does anybody... Is anybody seeing something that I'm not seeing or, mm-hmm. you know, like this kind of thing? So I think that it can be really powerful to have the this community around you who is, um, you know, like working through the same steps and process.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a cohort of like people yes. who are going through the same Great thing at word. the same time, finding each yeah. other.
1: Great word for that.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, go ahead.
1: sorry i just uh i guess like i was thinking i didn't totally explain the whole thing um the last couple of parts is that i have a few bonuses that are part of the course that are near and dear to my heart um which are intro to world religions um a deep dive into the mystical and contemplative traditions and then uh, how to make friends as an adult after a high control religion um, because, and these three felt just so important and sp- like this just for me really felt like they kind of tied the whole thing together because, um, like, like I was describing my experience in my grad program, um, I was surrounded by diversity and it sort of was almost like exposure therapy for, um, uh, like learning that other religions or religious expressions aren't scary um, and so that is sort of this idea around like learning that there are other religious expressions um, and that they are not or they don't have to be scary um, and then even if you choose to be religious there is so much outside of orthodoxy that <laughs> sounds a lot probably a lot more like you know spirituality or spiritual but not religious than what you've ever heard about in church for example um and then the friend thing because when you've been taught that there are some people who are in and there are some people who are out it can be hard to just like forget that when you leave right. um so that is um and those have been, I think, like, the biggest, some of the biggest aspects of, like, rebuilding that I've done. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I tell people, I'm very upfront with it, like, the hardest thing I work with in therapy is adults making new friends.
1: Oh, like, yes. Um,
0: Just in general, and then throw in, like, the deconstruction or reconstruction aspect of leaving a high-control religion and all that goes along with that. Like, it's it's very complicated. We Yeah make friends with people based on proximity. Who's in your neighborhood? Who do you go to school with? Who are your work people? And like, we don't get a ton of training anywhere. No. Uh, formally on how to make those connections and how to grow and nurture those connections because you don't just find a best friend overnight.
1: No. And um, uh, like, also <laughs> this is something that I've learned and still probably lifelong learning here that like, expecta- like my expectations for relationships are extremely high um and that like is that because of high control religion maybe um but that like there isn't there is likely in my adult life there's not going to be one friend or one person who satisfies all of my friend needs right um just like my partner doesn't you know like satisfy if you will um all of my needs as a human being um and so, in like that modern conception, it was that Alan, I'm the, the French philosopher Alan de Botton, I think, who is, talks about modern love and how it is um, this new conception of love or understanding of it to expect someone to be our everything.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: So I see that come into play um, for like myself. Um, and and other adult like clients as well who yeah. have this expectation of like I haven't found my best friend yet.
0: Right. Yeah. It's it's a soulmate quality. I
1: mm.
0: I tell my clients all the time. Like I'm not a romantic marriage therapist, which is a fun <laughs> fun thing. But that like yeah. yeah, like this soulmate soulmate idea is sold by Hallmark. It's sold by disney like it's not a real thing it's not based on anything like i love my wife when she gets together with best friend they go thrift shopping i don't like thrift stores sensory issues there's a lot of things about going into goodwill that i don't love uh, uh, and and like so yeah like for her to be with her best friend who likes to go thrifting with her or her sister right. like it's not weird or threatening to be like oh my partner gets their needs met by another person like that doesn't have right. to be a bad thing that makes a lot of sense in most mm. contexts it's just we have this weird idea around soulmates or my other half or you complete me type like ideology
1: yeah yeah and i think like uh, so i I've, I've moved a lot um i and and I think that, like for example, one of the biggest cultural changes, the cultural culture shocks, that I've ever experienced, as somebody who has like traveled the world numerous times, it, is from Texas to Boston, <laughs> and that that one was tough. And um, and I think like it is a skill that we learn and cultivate. And even though. And so even as I say that, like, I do think that there are a lot of, um, like, behavioral things that someone can choose to participate in or incorporate. And at the same time, it's like, I also have to kind of hold that with like an open, open hand, like not in a fist that, uh, you know, I can go to all the knitting meetups and uh, that I I can find um, and I can join the gym and i can um go to co-working spaces and whatever and i can still like it can still not come easily um and that there's just like normalizing like also normalizing i have this friend who is amazing and this new friend and uh like we sort of normalize for each other and uh there are other groups of friends who uh sort of make us f- who make us feel excluded mm-hmm. and i and i think that like i just say that to say like it has been so refreshing to me to have somebody else say oh god it's not just you like this happens to me all the time like he listen to what these gym girls did yeah. and um and because like i think that when people and I hear this from my clients too. Like when uh, there's a group of friends who get together and then they don't invite you, it can feel like so embarrassing. Uh, like, oh my gosh, like why didn't they invite me? And it and just like painful, right? And to have somebody in your life who, you, who like you guys can sort of normalize that for each other. Um, and then like one so, so angry I sent a voice message, and then there was this friend responding. I was like, It's kind of funny if you think about it. And it was like, from then on, I was like, oh, I guess you're right. Like, it's kind of like there's just, you know, like that heaviness and that seriousness that we bring to life with high control religions. Mm-hmm. Like, things are so serious. And it's like, sometimes it's like, Yeah, not that serious.
0: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like,
1: this person can be a friend for pizza and that's it
0: right and and being like thinking of it in terms of like building support i talk about a dartboard like the different uh rings on a dartboard, like your inner circle mm. people and then as you get out and you have those people who every two months your work friends go out and you're included but you're not included in their weekly hangouts like that's fine like then they're yeah. every two month friends and it's cool
1: yeah yeah it's oh, a nice analogy. I, I have used before. Um, like there are friends for pizza, or you have like soul friends or heart friends, mm-hmm. uh, or I mean, like Jesus Himself, Jesus the Man, um, did ha- have like you know the one whom Jesus loved, and then had the three, and then had the twelve. And then the apostles, and then like just everybody else, and so I'm right. like, okay, even Jesus like didn't have like, I like had a whole social network.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
1: So, even for my non-religious folks, like they're kind of like, oh, I guess that's true.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, Hannah, I'm in a segue, a uh, hard left turn here. Um, yeah. What do you? What do you do to kind of maintain your mental well-being? What's, what, what do you do maybe daily or weekly? Like, how are the things that kind of help keep you balanced and feeling like you're taking care of yourself?
1: Sure. So uh, lately, that is uh, putting really strict boundaries around social media and technology. Um, for example, I don't allow myself to be on social media on the weekends. Um, and... Then outside of that, I do a lot of knitting um, and I do uh, some other kind of like crafty things like creative journaling or um, calligraphy. And then I like, I'm just kind of, um, I think, I don't know if I've always been this way, but I'm just kind of a beginner at a lot of things. Like I'm beginning to learn calligraphy and like art and skiing and swimming and uh, dancing. And so I'm, I'm just kind of a beginner at a lot, of things. Um, but I do do a lot of like movement and exercise, and um, and then travel is probably one of the things that um, that like kind of keeps me sane. I'm we're I'm going on vacation soon, and uh, just is sort of where I feel like most me or like most alive.
0: Sure. Yeah. Very cool. You don't you don't know how to swim?
1: No, <laughs> I mean
0: I do. <laughs> that's the one out of all of that. That's the one that I'm going to pick out. <laughs>
1: um, I do know how to swim. Um, I can hold my own. I can jump off into the sea or whatever. Like, but um, I'm afraid of sharks. Thank you, Texas and Massachusetts. Um, there are active shark attacks there, um, sure. and so I'm terrified of sharks. So even when I'm in the Mediterranean. I can jump off, come up having an, like an actual panic attack um, and because you can see the the bottom and they're like rocks and they just look like, you know, dark sure. shapes and panic. So anyways, when I'm talking about learning how to swim, I mean like maybe learning how to swim without a panic attack. Nice. Yeah. I wasn't,
0: I wasn't picking on you. I was normalizing. I didn't learn how to swim till I was 16. I, I taught myself oh, yeah. like just one summer oh, nice. up by my grandparents. Cause like, I just was like, I don't know, doing the doggy paddle. Like again, I yeah. wasn't drowning, but I didn't yeah. know how to swim. effectively. Yeah.
1: I don't think I could say mine is effective. I've asthma. And so um, the sure. being under, like I can run, I can, I do a lot of cycling, um, but like being underwater makes me like freak out a little bit. Like there is no oxygen down here. Sure. Um, and so it just a, this is a little bit it's it's kind of a mental game swimming for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So no, that's good. It's good to pick up skills and learn things and try and approach it in a different way. It's good to not drown.
1: Yeah, totally. And yeah. I I don't know, I kind of I read this or listened to this audiobook um from the library app a few years ago during COVID about um being a beginner and this guy who just um was growing raising his daughter and decided to quit a bunch of stuff and like become like do stuff and then quit and and like be a beginner um, and i do think that it is a good skill for me to cultivate because i'm not very patient and Jen has, I'm not a super patient, like patient person, yeah. and so like learning a um, language um, and things like that is like really kind of stretches my patient muscle.
0: Yeah. No, I like that. I'm gonna seal this because I have ADHD, so I do things for three to six months and then never do them again, and just gonna <laughs> start yeah. owning it, and like, and then I quit it on purpose. Yeah. Not on. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hannah, this is this has been awesome. If uh, I highly recommend people follow you on Instagram, um, which is where I connected with you. You put out a lot of great content. But if people want to work with you or they want to learn more about some of the things that you offer, where they where can they go to find out more about you and your work?
1: Sure. So my website is Safe Talk Therapy. Um, That is the name of my private practice. Um, so if you're in Massachusetts and soon to be Florida or Texas and you're interested in therapy, then that would be a great way to reach out. Um, and then if you are just interested in staying connected, you can always join the um, like email newsletter that I send out and and that will kind of keep you up to date on all of the like new happenings.
0: Yeah, very cool. And we will have all those links in the show notes for people to check out. Uh, and I, all my stuff is at wellness with Jer. Um, so people can find my stuff there. Uh, Hannah, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy.
0: And to all our wonderful listeners. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Take care, everyone.